Hey everybody, and welcome to another bonus episode from a podcast from another world. And uh, in this episode, Dave has a very special guest along with him, so I really do hope you guys enjoy it. Also, I want to bring to your attention that we have begun to uh, start a new podcast network that we're calling the Slightly Irregular Podcast Network. And if I got that wrong, <laughs> somebody's going to correct me. Um, <laughs> I'm just kind of going off the cuff here. But it's a collection of different podcasts, and uh, we're just all trying to get together and help promote each other as well as you know do some cross uh you know promotion by having everybody in episodes along with each other so uh, here take a listen and i hope you guys enjoy this latest episode of a podcast from another world anchorage from polar expedition six anchorage from polar expedition six can you hear me over everybody i'm your host phantom dark dave and welcome to this little podcast that i do this is a show dedicated to horror and science fiction from the 1920s through the 1980s i've got everything from famous creature features drive-in specials straight to video obscure releases and even those scientific explorations filmed in a hollywood basement it all lives right here so clock out from reality and time and come with me to a place beyond the pattern of stars and deep into the depths of the ocean as we travel to the podcast from another world.
Today, I have a special episode lined up for you because it is the first of many episodes to come where I am joined by a guest. He is the host of Dead Hand Radio. Please welcome Andrew Hall. Hey, Dave. Thanks for having me on the show. No problem, man. How you doing? I'm doing good. Looking forward to talking about this new movie that we uh, we just watched. You know, I mentioned before that I've had some episodes lined up and I've seen to be running through some technical difficulties, and this was definitely one of the few. But luckily, it looks like I got everything situated, and I'm excited to bring Andrew on here because we've been chit-chatting for a little while, and he's joined us in the podcasting network, and you guys are going to see a lot of this where we're starting to appear on each other's shows, and so hopefully in the near future, you'll find me over on Dead Hand Radio. But Andrew, what is Dead Hand Radio? Dead Hand Radio is a podcast about the Cold War. Just recently had to refocus the message on the podcast to make it a little bit more positive because it was going kind of down a dark path because of the situation that we're in with current events in the world. So what I've decided to do was to focus on the interesting technological advancements, the, the human advancements that have occurred during that period from 1946 to 1991, which is known as the Cold War. I'm not a huge history buff, but when we started talking about what your podcast was and what it represented and just kind of the things that you were into and the knowledge that you were going to bring to the listening audience, we found a common denominator between a time period of movies that existed. And you mentioned kind of kickstarting in the lower 40s. And I'm like, man, the 40s and 50s are kind of like the heyday for my podcast. Hey, Andrew, what kind of movies, you know, could we potentially find in common? And you were like, well, Dave, a lot of this time, it was the whole fear of getting nuked and radiation. And I'm like, whoa, 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 you're telling me all of those monster movies that came out in the 50s, <laughs> which I absolutely love, can kind of be considered cold war and you were like absolutely and thus magic was born and it became the easiest way for us to have a crossover because the movie that we're going to talk about today is related to cold war in a sense it's from 1959 beast from haunted cave we open up with mr smith and mr jones who are riding around in a car and doing some sightseeing they make a couple of stops and take some photos. And Andrew, I know you like taking photos. I've seen your work on Twitter. What do you think about the vintage camera? Yeah, that was pretty cool. Just a little side note. When I first watched the movie, I actually did watch a different version of the movie than you did. So that scene that you mentioned in the beginning, it I didn't see it in the movie that I watched. The picture taking didn't happen. I went back and rewatched it, the version that you watched. And that, that whole sequence was in there. And that camera was huge. <laughs> it's it's a Polaroid camera, which means you take a picture and wait a minute or two for the film to develop. Really handy back in the day. You know, in the, I, I even used one when I was a kid back in the 70s. But nothing compared to what we have these days with the digital uh, cameras that have you take a picture and you see it instantly on your screen. It reminds me of a time whenever you used to have those disposable cameras yeah. and the same thing where you can never view it until you took it to your local drugstore to get it printed out. And I remember so many times just thinking to myself like, oh, just this was almost a good photo, except, you know, the one out of five people in here wasn't paying attention, you know, <laughs> and if I could just retake this image. But another thing you talked about, the camera being large, I even felt like the photographs were large. They were, they were large pictures, yeah. 
Next, we're up on a hill with Gil Jackson, who is the local tour guide, and Gypsy, who is clearly in love with him. She's having a drink, and yes, it's 10 in the morning, and flirting with him until they are joined by Mr. Alex Ward. That was terrific. That's terrific. Feels just like you're flying and you can keep on going forever. What a perfectly delightful idea. Sounds still ready? Still. Are you uh, ready for the Olympic chef? Gypsy, you really ought to try it. It's a brand new feeling. You mean I've missed one? Had enough for today? Yes, Gil. I'm expecting Mr. Smith and Mr. Jones. They've been out seeing the sights. I hope the sights are tied down. Mr. Jones and Mr. Smith want to take a lesson today? Yes, I think They'll probably be wanting to take one all night. Well, I doubt that. There's a cougar on a rampage in this area. I don't think I'd be frightened with you around. Mr. Jackson looks as though he could take care of anything, doesn't he, Alex? Happiness Lodge. The place is well-named, you. Thanks. I like it. Mighty hard place to get to, though. I like that, too. I bet you're hard to get to. Mr. Jones and Mr. Smith, which have to be the most two generic names, show up and start talking about their amazing photos. It's even mentioned that they got a picture of a mine. I wonder if that's going to come into play. Now, even though Mr. Ward said he was waiting for Mr. Smith and Mr. Jones, he decides it's time to go. And so he and Gypsy leave and they hop on a ski lift and that's when he confronts her. What are you trying to do? Make that yokel suspicious? Did I see something wrong, my sweet? Someday I'm going to shut that pretty little mouth of yours for good. Promises. Nothing but promises. Andrew, I don't know about you, but I don't think he was doing a too good a job of concealing his identity right here. The head honcho is what I called him, and you could see it right off the bat. He's He's not a nice person, even though he's trying to make himself out to be a nice guy, you know. But uh, what really struck me about this part of the the movie right here was, and you mentioned it already, is the Mr. Jones and Mr. Smith. At first I thought that must be lazy writing by these screenwriters for this film. But later on, we get a little bit more of an insight to the Byron character. And because he's always eating and he's acting like a goofball, he's just a moron. It kind of made me think that they intentionally did that as a joke. And this Byron character seems to be the comic relief for the whole film. Yeah, I completely agree with you, man. And I thought the same thing, too. I was like, well, seeing that this was kind of a Roger Corman thing, you know, they probably threw this together in two and a half days, <laughs> off two yeah. and a half dollars. And sure, why not have Jones and Smith? And it doesn't help that one of our main characters, Gil, who I just mentioned, he's also Mr. Jackson. Yeah. So I'm like, well, okay, we'll just throw them all together. But then we have Gypsy, and I'm like, well, throw all that logic out the window. Gypsy is not a common name. True. <laughs> Back in the hotel room, Gypsy is taking a bath with the door open and displaying her terrible singing skills. Alex is sitting on the bed, and in comes Marty and Byron, who you mentioned earlier, Byron, is Mr. Smith. Alex tells us about the upcoming plan. I think we got a classic going here. Marty, tonight you're going to go up and plant the charges in the mine, right? Right out. Tomorrow morning at 8.30... Gypsy is going to take the cowboy up on the ski lift to get him out of the way. At 9 o'clock, the mine blows. And everybody runs to see the disaster. It'll look big. 
Then we move into the administration building, make the heist, grab the ski lift, and meet the other two at the top for the trip. Simple. Simple as you, my boy. So then we wait at Jackson's cabin till Tatsu shows with the plane, right? Right. Yeah, seems like a pretty simple plan. Just blow up the mine and go in and rob the the administrative office. Yeah, not too much to it. And that's kind of another blessing in disguise with these 1950s movies is you just have a simple idea and you roll with it. Next scene, we're at the local bar where all of our characters are gathering around and having some fun. And one thing I want to point out is it's clear as day that everybody, with the exception of Gil, is in on this heist. And because they're using fake names, as we mentioned before, there's a running gag where Alex and Gypsy often call each other by different names, um, sometimes even Charles. Like, hey, Charles. Not so bad, Charles. And it kind of threw me for a loop, and then all of a sudden they started calling Gil Cowboy. And so, just to let you guys know, if it does pop up in a clip, yeah, it's not a mistake. It's not bad writing. It's just something they do in this crazy film. Gypsy and Alex, they're sitting at the bar, they're having a conversation, and we hear that Gypsy, she's kind of getting tired of her life and the way that it's going, and she wants to settle down and, I don't know, be normal. This, of course, it doesn't sit too well with Alex, and so she gets up and she decides she's going to go over and have a dance with Gil. Marty spots the waitress, named Natalie, and gives her a little nod to, uh, you know, meet her outside. Andrew, two things here. We see everlasting trouble in paradise for Gypsy and Gil, and we already mentioned Marty hitting on one girl. Now he's off to the next one. He's kind of a turd. Yeah, he's a bit of a womanizer. I thought he was digging on Jill's scene from earlier, but uh, now he's running off somewhere with Natalie. And, yeah, you're right about Gypsy and uh, Alex. Their relationship doesn't seem to be – it seems to be on the rocks pretty much. Next, Marty and Natalie, the waitress, they're heading up to the mine. They're all over each other, but I find it kind of weird that he took her there because we heard in the clip earlier like why he's going to the mine. He's going to plant these explosives, so I don't know. I guess he wants to make an explosive first impression? <laughs> well, dad joke? Too much? Eh, well, here's the clip. Hey, what's that in there? Part of the broken boot mine. Oh, yeah? Let's go take a look. Nothing to see this time of night. Besides, it's kind of spooky in the dark. There's been this big cat around. Hmm? Well, this, uh, baby will take care of any little, uh, pussycats. How come you pack a gun? Well, Gil Jackson told me about the cougar. Come on. What are you going to do now? I've never seen a gold mine before. I want to take a look. Come on. So they go inside and he asks her to, you know, just wait a minute. Stay right here. I'll be right back. And then he goes off, and sure enough, he plants the explosive, which, it's dynamite, and it's rigged with a clock. So, you know, we mentioned before the time period of the film, 
just like the camera, nothing's digital. And so it literally looks like one of those old-fashioned clocks you'd have on the nightstand where you have to pick it up, twist the back of it, and set it back down and wait for it to ring. Well, he makes it back to her, and they return to those lovey-dovey ways, but that's when the Beast shows up. And so, Andrew, I mean, we kind of get our first small glimpse of the Beast. Yeah, well, first off, that bomb was definitely a low-budget prop. I mean, I was even thinking, where the heck was he carrying that thing? In his pocket? He's walking around with a bomb already set to go off uh, while he's trying to swoon this this woman inside of a mine? Okay, a little bit, a little bit odd there. But, um, but then we start to see some weird whispery, wispy um, material or something coming from behind. And, yeah, at first I wasn't quite sure what I was looking at. And then we start to hear some growling, and as the scene cuts away, Natalie starts to scream. So we're not quite sure what's going on right there. Yeah, we're led to assume that they got attacked and they're done. Yeah. But back at the bar, the bartender is now wondering where Natalie went. And that's when Marty comes storming into the door, and of course Natalie is not with him. Alex can see that something's bothering Marty, and so they step aside to have a conversation. Come on, talk. I told you. I told you. You told me nothing. I told you. Did you set the charges? At nine o'clock? I mean, what's bugging you? You killed that good-looking chick. What chick? Natalie. You mean the girl that works in the bar? You took that girl. Gypsy joins in the conversation and Alex fills her in on the details. Everyone assumes that it was the cougar that killed Natalie. Well, everybody except for Marty. But in typical fashion of the way these films go, nobody listens to him. It's the next morning and Gil shows up to the hotel to pick everybody up for the day of skiing. Alex notices the state police, are they're outside, they're asking questions about Natalie, and he starts to get a little nervous. He tells Gil and Gypsy to go ahead, go up to the mountain, and he and the boys, they'll meet them up on the hill. This, of course, allows Alex and the boys the time they need to go rob the gold. Yeah, and it was, it was a pretty good scene. They were, um, it shows them breaking into the vault. Uh, when they get inside the vault, there's stacks of gold bars, and for some reason they can only carry... Six gold bars. I guess that's two each. But we do find out a little bit later on why they can only carry two. Yeah, I was wondering if it was similar to the bomb. Like they were just going to put the gold in their pocket and, you know, (laughs) one pocket here, one pocket there. (laughs) Well, while the heist is going on, Gil and Gypsy, they're getting a little closer. You know, we learned that Gil is about 30 and he has a nearby cabin. Gypsy is 26. And she seems just really spent with her life. Like, I talked about it in the bar earlier, but it seems that she misses the old days of her youth. Well, the boys, they show up, and they're ready to ski. And so Gil leads them down the mountain. And one thing to clarify is that this is not your average skiing. They mention that they are doing cross-country adventure. So, yes, they're skiing, but they're also hiking with skis on. And, Andrew, I mean, I guess I didn't even realize this was a thing. That's a good point you make there. Um and yes, cross-country skiing is a thing, though I've never done it myself. But it does seem like it's pretty physically demanding. 
And this is the reason why I think they could only carry the two bars of gold uh, because they were planning on going on this long cross-country skiing trip. Also, at this point, because they blew up the mine, it seems like there's now they have the beast on their trail. And again, we catch another short glimpse of the of the beast. We're not really sure what it, I mean, you can pretty much figure out what the beast is, but the movie's trying to lead us to not really know what the beast is, keeping it a, a mystery. Yeah, and I find it kind of funny that the beast is stalking them, where in the film earlier, it took so much to get into the mine to find the beast, but now the beast is kind of just out in the open. So I guess even the beast needs to hunt for food. Well, I think I think they blew up his home. You know, they blew up his home, and the beast recognized Marty, and Marty felt like the beast was actually hunting him. But, you know, that that's kind of what we're led to believe, is that the beast is hunting Marty because he knows Marty left the bomb, which blew up his home. That's kind of what I took out of it. You're right, because throughout this movie, the audience is going to notice the same thing we did, where it seems like a personal vendetta. Yeah, exactly. We see them hiking for a while, <laughs> and then they reach this somewhat flat area, and it looks like it's time to lay low for a while. Oh, we'll camp here for tonight. Wow! Go to places we're going to find. I've never been so tired all my life. Not me. I got just a thing to fix you up. Yeah, what? We need firewood. Stop. <laughs> What's wrong with you? We're being followed. What? I've been feeling it on the back of my neck all day. You need a haircut. Hey, you're getting pretty useless. <laughs> Don't laugh, Byron. That old tingling has saved many a trapper and prospector. Huh? Here's to the old tingling from an old what about that wood? Well, I'll tell you, if I can get up here, the spirit's willing. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> well, stay put. I'll uh, be back in a few minutes. And while I'm gone, you can start packing down the snow. As Gil leaves, this gives us the chance to hear what's bothering Marty. We get to hear about what the next step is, and now they have the gold... And it appears that Alex is getting pretty fed up with Gypsy's affection for Gil. What's hitting you? Hey, you gotta forget that girl. I'm not thinking about her. What are you thinking about? The thing that got her. Now it's on me and it means to get me. And that's what's been following us. You're a bundle of cheer. You better snap out of it fast, smart boy. Yeah, sure. You know, day after tomorrow, Tash is gonna come out here with a ski plane. And we're off to Canada to spread her loose. You knock off the funny talk with nature, boy. Can't stop me from talking. Don't tempt me. It's nighttime, and the crew is sleeping in the snow. Marty hears a growling noise, and so he grabs his gun, and he pursues it. But as he does... He heads out into the forest, comes across Natalie, the girl that he basically abandoned in the mine when the beast attacked. She seems to be suspended between a couple of trees with some kind of a webbing material. And she even opens up her eyes to show that she's still alive. The creature's nearby, uh, and we hear a growl again, which is kind of a pretty creepy growl. And so Marty starts shooting at the beast, 
as he's running back to the camp. I'm glad that you described it so well because this is kind of a turning point in the movie. And I'll get to one more scene later when we get there. But I thought that it was so intense and creepy, especially for what we've seen up until this point. Because from the beginning to here, it's been kind of your average 50s horror movie where it's very character driven. You kind of know what you're getting into. But the scene of Natalie suspended between the trees and the webbing around her, and like you said, even seeing her eyes open, knowing that something about her still being alive just kind of amplifies how creepy it is, and it just gave me the chills, man. Yeah, another thing to note was that the look on her face, the makeup they did was really subtle, but you could tell that she was there was something wrong with her physically. She wasn't dead, but she was not quite a zombie definitely in in dire distress physically the gang wakes up when they hear the gunshots that marty fired he comes back he's frantic and everyone wants to know what all the fuss is about and he says nothing i mean this guy looks terrified his friends are genuinely concerned and yet he chooses not to speak andrew did you find that weird yeah and it, it seems like this little heist expedition is getting to the whole group at this point uh and someone's about to snap It's the next morning, and they're cooking breakfast over a fire. Gil is walking around, and he notices something in the snow, and so he calls them over to take a look. Look at this. What is it? Some kind of tracks. I've never seen anything like it before. Must have passed through here during the night. You were on guard last night. What happened? Nothing you can handle. What kind of an answer is that? You were on guard all last night. Did you see something or didn't you? What I saw, you wouldn't believe. Look, I'm getting sick and tired of this. What did you see last night? Nothing. Maybe I can help you to remember. Oh, that would be nice. We could take turns sitting up with him and his friend. Come on, Alex, let's go. Andrew, call me crazy, but it looks like Alex is getting a little frustrated with everybody and possibly is starting to reveal something we called in the beginning where he's not the nice guy we thought he was. Definitely. Here, Gil seems to be a pretty cool customer, and I don't think he worries too much about Alex or his little cronies, for that matter. He definitely seems to be pretty interested in Gypsy. They set off on more cross-country expedition until they reached Gil's cabin. They explained to Gil that they're tired, and maybe they could just stay overnight. Now, Gil, of course, he's happy to hear it, because that means more time with Gypsy, and so he wants to introduce them to his housekeeper, Small Dove. Yeah, here's another illustration of what a goofball Byron is. He bombs out of the cabin screaming and dives headfirst in the snow, and we're not quite sure why, but uh, you know, we think maybe there's a bear in the cabin or something. Or or possibly the beast was coming after him, and it turns out to be just the housekeeper. (laughs) Yeah, definitely touching base on those, like, Abbott and Costello movies. Uh, For sure. Next, Gil is coming back from wherever, and he passes Marty, who's outside having a smoke, and they actually have a really good conversation. Our time for chow. Say, Gil... Uh Tell me something, how much land you got here? Oh, about 20 acres. Does this uh, lake get pretty solidly frozen over? Yeah, it's pretty frozen. 
But I wouldn't try walking on it. <laughs> Figure how much how much money can you make as a ski instructor? Well, you can't make as much money here as you could at a place like Aspen. I could buy. Will you make enough money to live on and be happy? Well, sure. You can't base happiness on the amount of money you make. Well, I'm not knocking money, but well, there are other things. Besides, I got this property and the ski shop. Well, basically, you do pretty good, then. Yeah, it works out okay. And nobody's your boss. Well, nobody tells me what to do, if that's what you mean. Well, don't you have to keep pushing? Or don't you feel like taking it easy? Well, I like what I'm doing. I think that's about as easy as you can take it. <laughs> we better go on in. Small Dog's probably got dinner ready. It's supper time, and everyone is gathered around the table, scarfing down some chow, and listening to the radio. But of course, we need to interrupt this nice dinner with a special bulletin. And now let's pause for a brief look at the news. The biggest story to hit the Black Hills since the murder of Wild Bill Hickok was Sunday's sensational robbery at the Broken Boot Mine in Deadwood. What? Authorities believe the bandits could not have left the vicinity by the single daily train, and therefore must be hiding out somewhere in the area. Police also believe that the simultaneous mine explosion in which watchman Leonard Wilsey lost his life was in some way connected with the robbery, perhaps as a diversion. In a moment, the weather. Can you beat that? It must have happened right after we left. Yes, we'd have heard about it. The weatherman says snow and heavy overcast for Deadwood and Lead all day Tuesday with strong winds Wednesday, possibly clearing Thursday. And now, back to Yo. music and a metal mood. Will the weather be the same here as it is in town? Just about. I hope it clears for the trip back. Better clear tomorrow. Why tomorrow? We're staying here, remember? Yeah, so right here, as the radio broadcast is reporting the details of the heist, I'm watching Gil's reaction pretty close, uh, just to see if he suspects his guests have anything to do with it. Uh, and they're all playing it pretty cool, and Gil doesn't seem to quite have any suspicions, but I think he's, I think he's playing it cool as well. Yeah, and I love the part where we mentioned earlier, too, about Byron's character and the way that he just, he's eating like a 13-year-old, man. <laughs> Constantly, man. <laughs> and that's another thing, too, is just looking at the aesthetics of the scene, I mean, definitely a product of his time. I don't even own a table for us to eat on. Everybody in my family here, which we're a small group, but we eat on TV trays, so it, it was it kind of nostalgic to even see like a family gather around a large table listening to the radio having dinner? I think it depends. I, my family and I, we still sit down and have dinner together at, at the table. But I think that is a, a more of a product of times past. I, I don't think it's as common as it used to be back then. All right. Well, from now on, I'm going to get on the ground and put my plate next to my cat and that we eat with him when he's eating out of his cat bowl. <laughs> that way we can eat like a family. Yeah. Now that dinner's over, Marty is passed out in the chair. Gypsy is having a dance with Byron. And Alex walks over and strikes up a conversation with Gil, who's over by the fireplace. What do you do up here on these long winter nights, Gil? Read, mostly. What kind of stuff? Sometimes I just flip open the encyclopedia. Something interesting on almost every page. Don't you ever have a yen to cut out and make the big city? What for? Oh, that's living. Really? I went to 
San Francisco once. I was there for about a week. I think I saw just about everything there was to see in that length of time. Didn't like it? No, it was wonderful. But there's something about these mountains and trees, wind, makes everything else kind of insignificant. This is when the mood changes. Gypsy, she's had a lot to drink, and she comes over and she puts her arms around Gil and plants the biggest kiss on him, and this, of course, aggravates Alex, and Alex punches Gil right in the face. Gil takes it like a man, returns with a punch of his own. Marty wakes up when he hears the racket. He grabs a knife, and he goes, and he tries to stab Gil, so things are consistently elevating but Gil, he defends himself. He drops Marty like a bagged habit. And Alex is like, he, he stops it. He's like, okay, he calls the guys off. He apologizes. But then he's really quick to show his true face because he turns and he starts to snap at Gypsy, right? He blames it on her. Gypsy gets mad. She throws her drink in his face. And Alex grabs her and he slaps her, not even once, but multiple times. And, of course, this angers Gil. Gil, he kind of jumps in place. He, he's going to try to help her. But then Byron pulls a gun on him. She eventually, she storms out the door, right? Gil grabs his jacket. He follows her out. And Andrew, I don't know, man. I think it's safe to say we're not friends anymore. Definitely. Right here, Alex is lucky that Byron stepped in when he did because Gil was about to wear those boys out. And uh, if I, I think if Byron didn't come in with that gun, I think Alex and Marty were about to get a pretty good, pretty good beat down. Yeah, as we see a lot through this movie, Gil is a hands-on guy. He's fit, he's in shape, and, I mean, he is the wilderness, right? So we're talking about him going up against two guys who the only exercise they do is getting to and from the next job. And so I think you're right. I think Gil would have had no problem taking the two guys out and leaving with the lady. We even see Gil in one scene chopping wood as he's talking to a gypsy. So, yeah, he, he's more than a handful for these boys. As they leave, Byron mentions, hey, I'm going to pull the gun out. I'm going to shoot Gil, right? And Alex tells him, he says, no, no, let's wait until tomorrow after the plane arrives, and I'll do it myself. Outside, Gil finds Gypsy. She's sitting down. She's having a cigarette, and he goes over to comfort her. Gypsy? big try, Galahad. Fortunately, I do that sort of thing all the time. Alex had a perfect right to slap me. Maybe I'll kill him someday, but I can't blame him for being sore. Why don't you get out? That's what I keep telling myself. But I know I'll never have the guts. I've become part of Alex. Maybe a sick part, but a permanent one. What are you really afraid of? I was an underpaid model in a wholesale house. And I met Alex. He was young and loaded. I liked the way he pushed me around. I liked it then. And now it's too late to go back. And I don't know if I really want to go back. I don't know what I want. But I know I'd rather have Alex than nothing at all. You're selling yourself short. Well, 
was allowed to try and demand, mister. And I don't hear any bitters. Andrew, I gotta say, man, like, what a great line. This is something that I had to rewind and play again. She says, it's a loyalty cry and demand, and I don't hear any bitters. Uh, man, Andrew, I know you and I have had conversations before about one-liners. What did you think? Definitely, it was a good, uh, you know, it, it just shows that there was some really good writing, some thought-provoking writing that went into this movie, even though it was a low-budget film. What I kept thinking through the whole movie is that this doesn't seem like a monster movie. It could easily be a gangster drama or even a dark romance from the 50s. I almost forgot I'm sitting there watching a sci-fi horror film uh, a couple of times. It shows the talent, man. Just like you said, it could. this could have easily been something else if you took the monster out. And that's another scene that we're going to be getting to in a few is I absolutely love the way that the dialogue just kind of turns around. And it goes from this B movie that we're watching to something that could have easily been a Hollywood noir. Definitely. Back in the cabin, Byron is trying to make something to eat, and this is another one of those comical scenes, and Small Dove, she's just standing there, and she's staring at him like he's an idiot, which, as we've gathered, he kind of is, but then they get distracted by that menacing, growling noise you mentioned earlier. They hear it outside, and so they go out the back door to investigate a strange noise, which, yeah, sure, why wouldn't you? But then Marty comes running out of the front door, and he's ready. Like, we've mentioned that he knows that growl now, so he has his gun in hand, and this is when we see the Beast, and not perfectly, but we get a little more of it this time. And the Beast kind of puts his arm, is it his leg? Whatever it is, puts it around him. And of course, he fires a shot at it, and it leaves screaming in pain, but not before it's able to like really put some hurt on Marty. And now, at this point, Andrew, tell me a little bit about what we see. You know, we, yeah, we do see the, the little bit of the creature a little bit more in detail. But to me, it looks like like either a hairy octopus or or some kind of uh giant spider which is what i'm pretty sure it is by this time i'm pretty sure it's a spider because all we've seen so far is just little hints of spindly web covered legs vague images of some sort of arachnoid creature so you're almost certain that it's a spider but it still could be something else because they're not quite 100 percent revealing it yet we're definitely getting that Jaws effect where the less you see, the better, which was definitely the technique through the 50s, so you couldn't see how cheap a costume exactly. was made. But I'll, yeah. I'll tell you, Andrew, I love it. I'm on board with it because, yeah, I'm with you. It definitely had an octopus vibe, but I'm on board with the spider just because you can see the like little bitty hairs and thorns or whatnot that's on the legs. But we're not talking about somebody on all fours with fake appendages you know, and legs coming off the side. If this is a spider, this is definitely a man standing or woman standing in a suit. Yeah. And so you got this on two legs spider, but it almost has like this swamp thing look to it. All I know is when I saw everything, I was like, I am so on board with this. Yeah. I didn't even think about the swamp thing, but you're right. It does have that, that vibe to it. We're back in the cabin. Marty is getting his wound cleaned up by gypsy. Alex is tuning into the radio and growing really concerned when he hears about the weather report. On the weather picture, forecasters warn that the new low moving in from Canada will bring blizzards to portions of the Dakotas sometime before Wednesday noon. In other parts of the country... Blizzards. What's your worry? It might not come anywhere near here. Meanwhile, we can take it easy. Or are you in a hurry to get somewhere? 
What's that supposed to mean? Just a question. Next morning, Alex is outside looking up to the sky, and we're getting the notion that, due to the weather, that plane is not going to show up on time. Marty leaves the cabin with his gun, Gil is chopping wood, and Gypsy, she's just kind of sitting there watching him work. After a few moments of some sweet conversation, Gypsy breaks the ice and tells him that they're planning to kill him. And I know when I was watching this scene, it kind of struck me that, oh, like we're getting to that point, right? And Gil, of course, he's already aware, and he's already been planning his escape the whole time. But when he says it, it's kind of in a Humphrey Bogart kind of way. You don't know me, and I don't know you at all. You got it in your mind you want to return to nature, and I'm part of it. But what happens when you get bored? How do you know what I think? I don't know. I wish I did. I know one thing for sure. I'm sending Small Dove back to her relatives. And I'm heading back to blow the whistle on your friends. If you still want to come along, meet me between 6 and 6.30 on the ridge where we first saw the cabin. Next scene, Alex and Byron are talking and we see Small Dove and she's standing over by the fire. Byron mentions he's kind of got feelings for her. He doesn't come out and say it, but he kind of says it. But then, of course, Alex, as cold and straight-faced as he is, he breaks it to him that, well, they're going to have to kill her along with Gil. And Marty, isn't that the way it usually goes in these heist situations? Well, just then, Marty shows up, and he claims to have found the cougar's cave. So, Andrew, I mean, between Marty showing up, finding the cave, and... We're hearing now that we're going to kill Small Dove and even one of their own, Marty. What did you think? Well, it's just further evidence of what a ruthless scumbag Alex really is and what a clueless buffoon Byron is. These two are like a couple of feral dogs. Some time passes and the crooks are just hanging out. You know, they're listening to the radio. Marty and Alex are playing cards and we learn that Gil has went off hunting. Okay. Gypsy starts asking Alex if they could possibly just retire after this job. And of course, he doesn't take too well to that. He not only doesn't really care about Gypsy, but it seems he only cares about himself and his money. This leads her to, you know, just be fed up. So she gets up. She says, I'm taking a walk. But, Andrew, I think that we know what's really happening here. She's going to go meet up with Gil, and she's going to accept his offer. And as she leaves, Alex sends Byron out to spy on her. When Byron gets outside, he begins to chase after her, but he is stopped dead in his tracks by the loving and sweet arms of Small Dove. Yeah, this is pretty good, this scene right here. What starts out to be a sweet and kind of funny little scene with Small Dove, and she's manhandling Byron just to show you what a a weak little wimp this guy is. She's obviously trying to keep him from going after Gypsy, but then the scene turns grim as Small Dove is attacked by the beast. We learn two things from this scene. Small Dove is most likely the second victim of the beast, and the beast is wounded by fire. You mentioned that we're kind of led to assume that she's the next victim, and that's because this scene, it ends abruptly, right? And now we're with the duo of Gil and Gypsy. Well, they share a good and long overdue, in my opinion, kiss, and then they begin heading towards town. Well... Back at the house, it seems Alex and Byron finally believe what Marty has been scared of all along. 
I see that you gentlemen have changed your ideas about my eyesight. Shut up. It got small now. Well, maybe it'll be satisfied with it. Not by a long shot. It knows who it's after. We're going to do something. Well, do nothing but stay put. It hasn't tried to get into the cabin yet. As a matter of fact, it ran from us. It didn't run from us. It ran from the fire that Byron threw at us. Well, it doesn't make any difference. What chased it away? We, we, we're out here on a job. We can't afford to have any nightmares. Okay, okay. I never saw such an animal. What is it? I saw pieces of an egg in the mine where it got Natalie. Now, that could have been buried there for millions of years until the men working on the mine found it. I don't care what it is. I don't care if it chews up the whole state. I don't care if it came from Mars or happened by spontaneous combustion. We're going to Canada with a load of gold, so forget it. You'll get it. It'll get nothing. You got small, though. Probably get Gypsy, too. Gypsy? Where is she? I saw her leaving on her skis. Cowboy didn't come back yet, either. Gypsy and the cowboy. They deserve each other. I had to laugh when Marty tells his partners, it's one of my favorite actual lines in the movie because this whole time Marty is talking about you know how this creature is chasing him it's got a personal vendetta after him and his friends don't believe him you know they think he's crazy they're even planning on killing the guy he turns around and he says I see that you gentlemen have changed your ideas about my eyesight and the only response Alex has is shut up. <laughs> he won't admit his defeat. Yeah, that, that scene cracked me up right there. I was laughing pretty good at that one. When I listen to you explain it, it gives me vibes of a movie that is beloved around the world. Uh, did you ever see Jaws the Revenge, which was the fourth movie? I can't say that I have. I don't think so. Well, I say it lightly. It's actually the most hated Jaws film because the premise is – the shark has a personal vendetta with one of the surviving characters okay. and literally travels across the world. Wow. <laughs> which we know sharks don't have personal vendettas yeah. like that. But, okay, moving on. Gil and Gypsy eventually stop and notice the storm is only getting worse and they may need to find another plan. Can we beat the storm? Not a chance. Well, what do we do? We'll have to turn back. yet. I know of a haunted cave not far from here. If you're not afraid of ghosts, we'll wait there till the storm blows over. Anytime your broomstick is ready. Back in the cabin, Marty is cleaning his gun and Alex is laying on the couch and he's yelling for Byron. He's like, I'm hungry. Make me something to eat, you buffoon. And Marty tells him that Byron left. And that's when Alex is like, eh, forget him. And now it looks like the tables have turned and we're going to be left with Alex and Marty, who split the gold. Byron makes his way to the cave and is searching for Small Dove. Conveniently enough, this is the same haunted cave that Gil and Gypsy are heading to. So Byron's making his way through the dark and he hears something. And it's not something, it's someone. And they're crying out for help and it's Small Dove. So she's still alive. 
he reaches her, he pulls out his knife, he starts to cut her out of the webs. Just then, our beast, which we get to see again, is definitely a spider. He attacks and captures Byron. This really had to be a real cave, because I don't think they would have had a budget to be able to design a cave this realistic looking. There's a scene where Byron walks into the chamber of the cave, pans his light across the whole expanse of the cave, and we see it's a pretty big cave. So there's there's really no way that I think on a small budget like this they could have built this as a set. Yeah, and definitely at this time, man, we're shot on location. And you're right, this is a real cave. The one thing that bugged me the most about the movie more than anything else was the way we refer to it as a cave or a mine. And I'm like, so is it a cave or is it a mine or are these two different locations? Oh, I'm sure I'm sure they're two different locations because this cave is out near the uh the cabin which they had to travel miles to get to. The mine was oh. back near town. You're right. Okay. Well, see, my logic was it's the same place, but the reason they're calling it two different things is because this movie would be worse if it was called Beast from Haunted Mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it, and we find out that that is actually the haunted cave, not the mine. The mine is different. Okay, gotcha. Well, I'm with you, though. I love the scenery. And have you seen Jeepers Creepers? Yeah, the first one. Long time ago. Right, that's the one that matters. So remember the scene where they go through the tunnel and they're kind of underground? and they look up, that's the vibes I was getting. I was wondering if maybe inspiration was pulled from here because the way they shine the light, and you mentioned you can see the whole backdrop of the cave, and then we see bodies that are spiderwebbed up. It just gave me those Jeepers Creepers vibes, and I just was like, man, they were doing this back in the 50s. Yeah, Yeah, there were some impressive little bits of cinematography, and like we said a couple times before, that the writing was pretty spot on for this movie. Meanwhile, while all this is going on, back at the cabin... Alex and Marty discovered that Gil has some flare guns. They decide to go after the others, even though I thought they were going to let them die, but okay, I'm pretty sure it has something to do with Gypsy. (laughs) But it's also good that Marty knows where the cave is, so again, we're dealing with convenience, and they get the idea that they can use the flare guns as flashlights so they can see inside the cave. (laughs) I'll buy it for a dollar. That's kind of a ridiculous (laughs) concept, but hey, they got the flare guns. Yeah, it just makes you wonder how many flares they had if they were going to just spend them like that. Yeah, exactly. One thing I want to say, this next clip that I'm about to play, it might be a little loud. So if it is, I apologize. But then again, it might be okay. I'll try to level it out. But we know back in these movies, whenever the music amplifies, it tends to like take over the dialogue. And whenever the creature kind of attacks, you kind of hear it. And so I didn't want to leave the clip out. I definitely wanted you to be able to hear the growling that we hear and hear the people getting attacked. So... Here we are, you know, we head back over to the cave, the beast attacks and feeds on those who are caught in the web.
here again we see uh, what a brave and strong woman Small Dove is. As the beast is attacking them, Small Dove grabs the knife out of Byron's hand and starts stabbing the heck out of the beast. That diverts the beast's focus back onto Small Dove, and basically that saves Byron's life at that point. Right. She saves him. She's getting brutally attacked, and the whole time my attention is still on Natalie, right? Because Correct me if I'm wrong, but she was the first one that was getting her blood drained on screen. Yeah. Yeah. And this was also an interesting part of the movie because why did the creature keep the victims until it had three? Was there some kind of a ritual process going on? That thought crossed my mind because my mind goes into those weird uh, areas that, uh, you know, you, you might not think about at first glance, but... Well, if any of our listeners out there are arachnid experts, and if there's any logic to spiders eating pack three, <laughs> let us know. <laughs> Gil and Gypsy make their way into the cave. Gil, much like Marty in the beginning, tells his significant other to just wait here, stay put. Now, which, why does everybody think it's such a great idea to split up when they get in the cave? I don't know, but Gil hears Byron screaming. So he heads over to where the screaming is coming from, and of course, he's attacked by the beasts. He starts to fire his gun, and we're not dealing with automatic machine guns, so after each shot, he's got to consistently you know, load and reload, and so what's happening is he takes a shot, and he walks backwards, but as he walks backwards, he's going up this inverted plane, and we see he's kind of putting himself in a corner, and as he starts to fire his gun more and more, Gypsy gets worried, and so she starts to come to the rescue, and what does she do? She starts picking up rocks and throwing it at the beast, so... Yay, big rocks. Okay, the beast turns toward her and now begins to chase her. And so she makes her way back where she came from, which we know is the entrance of the cave. And she basically saves Gil's life here. So, I don't know, behind every good man is a great woman, because we've just seen that with Small Dove and with Gypsy. But that's when Alex and Marty show up. She says that Gil forced her to go. And so they're like, whatever. And they grab her by the arm and they lead us to Gil. Well, that scene you were talking about where Gypsy came to Gil's rescue by throwing rocks at the beast, that's just another example of how even back in the 50s, Hollywood wanted to represent women as strong characters, not just as weak uh, heroines in distress, you know, kind of thing. But uh, what really got me about this final scene was when Alex finally gets his just desserts uh, and the beast takes him out, we just hear him screaming. And he's calling Marty, help me, save me. <laughs> so so we really we really get an understanding of what a coward the guy is. Yeah, and something about, and this sounds terrible, but I think everybody agrees, hearing him scream for his life and knowing, like you said, he gets his just desserts, like it just brings so much pleasure to us as viewers, and it kind of completes the circle. Like, out of everybody, he was the real monster. Absolutely. Yeah, th- that's a good point. The Beast of... Haunted Cave is the name of the film, and I think the beast throughout the whole film was this dude Alex, man. He was a menace to, to his friends, to his girlfriend, to the people that were trying to help him. He, he was The guy was just a dirtbag. Yeah, he was, man. And so he's killed, and then a Marty, of course, is getting attacked, but not before Marty gets to fire off that one last shot, which we mentioned was from a flare gun. 
And guess what? We've already said the beast is afraid of fire. The flare gun hits him. The beast goes up in flames. And that's a wrap. You know, Gil gets gypsy. They see the beast burn. It was unfortunate to lose Marty, even though he was a very William Shatner ladies' man from the 60s. -hmm. He still wasn't too bad of a guy. He did come to the rescue and save them. But that's it. So, man, what did you think about the movie? Yeah, I liked it, man. I, I didn't have much expectations going into it because I had never even heard of the film. I didn't even watch the trailer before I watched the movie. But uh, after watching it, I was pleasantly surprised. Like I said, the writing was pretty good throughout the whole movie. The beast was comical. You know, a dude in a, in a spider costume, which, and that's the reason they made movies that way back then. But it turns out that making movies where the creature is not as visible or, you know, you don't actually see the creature. And the best movie to do this in film history, in my opinion, was Alien. Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. And it seems like Alien might have taken a page out of this early uh, monster movie to um, to keep the, the creature hidden as long as possible. And th- I'm glad you said that because that's kind of one thing that I'm noticing with horror today is we can complain as much as we want about how CGI is not really used in all the right ways anymore. Like if you have like a movie like Toy Story where the whole thing's CGI, it's great. Yeah. I'm 100% on board. When you have a horror movie that blends CGI with practical and it uses it to transition effects, it's great. But when your whole scene is computer generated, I'm usually not on board for that. And the reason I bring that up is because for a while it seemed like that was all we were getting. And then I noticed a certain shift back to practical effects. And I think it's exactly what you said. It's people growing up in a time period and being influenced by films that they loved growing up and respecting the genre and respecting the art that it was. And so people who grew up watching these 50 movies in the 70s and 80s gave us the splatter effects or gave us the the practical creatures, which are phenomenal. And then people growing up during the 80s and watching that that got through film school and what are now making movies, and we've seen the switch back. And I got to say, man, it's just making for some really great horror movies again. Yeah, the combination of CGI with practical effects, even animatronics, is undeniable. You can't get every nuance in CGI that you can get from a practical effect. Andrew, man, thanks for joining me on this episode. It was such a blast having you on here, and I'll make sure to bring you back in the future. And just one last time, let's promote your show again. Tell us again who are you and what you do. Well, first of all, I appreciate you having me on here, Dave. You know, I've I've been kind of anxious to get with you and do something because you are one of the people that influenced me to start podcasting. Truly appreciate all the encouragement that you've given me. If anybody is interested in learning about the Cold War, and seeing it in a positive light, since I've kind of switched the format of it, come check out Dead Hand Radio. And where can they download the show? Oh, well, I'm on Twitter, uh, so they can they can check out Twitter at Dead Hand Radio. I post all the episodes over there at Twitter. Or if you want to go directly to the website, deadhandradio.com. Or you can find it on iTunes, uh, Spotify, any other podcasting platform that's out there.
Alright guys, now comes the part where I talk about the behind the scenes stuff. I know you were waiting for it, so let's dive in. This film was directed by Monty Hellman. This was in fact his first film. Now, later he worked in collaboration on a film that will definitely be on this podcast called The Terror. You guys have seen The Terror, right? Jack Nicholson? Boris Karloff? Good stuff. He then went on to do a film called Back Door to Hell, which, surprisingly, is not a porno. He did another film called... Wait, is this a porno? Are you sure? Okay, well, he did another non-porno called... uh, Cockfighter. Is it anything like Street Fighter? But with dicks? Eh. Oh, snap. In 1989, he did Silent Night, Deadly Night 3. Better watch out. And I'm happy to announce that he is still making quality films like these today. Let's move on to the writer of the film, Charles B. Griffith. That sounds kind of familiar. Charles worked on such films as It Conquered the World. He also did these non-pornos, even though they're called Flesh and Spur and Naked Paradise. He wrote Attack of the Crab Monsters, definitely not a porno I'd watch, Not of This Earth, The Undead, A Bucket of Blood, Little Shop of Horrors, Creature from the Haunted Sea, She-Beast, and even collaborated on Barbarella. That's a B-movie list if I have ever seen one. How about we take a look at some of our actors? Let's start with Michael Forrest, who played Gil. Michael was in The Deadly Mantis. The saga of the Viking women and their voyage to the waters of the Great Serpent Sea has got to be the longest title for a film I've ever seen. Is that serious? He was in one of the original Twilight episodes. You may have seen it. It's called Black Leather Jackets. That was a fun one. He did a lot of Western TV shows, but check this out. He was in the original Star Trek, and he was in King Kong Lives. But then he made a switch in his career, and he started doing voice acting. It looks like he was in some pretty big animes, which I know my boys over in California are going to love. He was in Akira... He was in Ninja Scroll. Wait, stop. Stop the press. Hold on. He was in Body of Evidence. Okay, that is almost a porno. All right, hold on. He did voice work in Street Fighter 2, the animated movie. I knew porn and Street Fighter would eventually be connected. I called it. Wow. Okay, look, he did more voice work in Ghost in the Shell and Cowboy Bebop. And holy crap, he was in one of my favorite childhood TV shows, Masked Rider. What? Do you guys know Masked Rider? Maybe it'll be on Dave's Pop Culture Podcast YouTube edition. Stay tuned for that. But you know what? It doesn't stop there. He was in Power Rangers Lightspeed Rescue. Man. And I'm just going to stop right there because as I look at it, this guy was in over 250 credits. So, yeah, go you, man. Let's look at Sheila. Sheila? That's a weird way to spell it. Sheila Noonan, who played Gypsy. And she was only in five things. So... She was in Bucket of Blood, which is great, Ski Troop Attack, The Incredible Petrified World, and an episode of Gunsmoke. And everybody was in Gunsmoke. My mama was in Gunsmoke. The porno. Let's talk about Frank Wolf, who, he was our baddie in the film. He was Alex Ward, right? He was in The Wasp Woman. He was also in an original episode of The Twilight Zone called A Passage for Trumpet. And he kept doing a lot of TV until he did this non-porno called Eat It. And then he did a lot of work in Italian films. Oh, that's cool. 
Now let's talk about Wally Campo, who was Byron. He was our comic relief in this. It seemed that a lot of these guys stuck together because he was in Ski Troop Attack and Little Shop of Horrors. And just a little side note, you guys know that this movie was produced by Roger Corman, and they actually they filmed Ski Troop Attack like back-to-back with this movie. So it's not a surprise that a lot of these people were in Ski Troop Attack. Moving on. Oh, no. How cool. Check this out. Hey, Brian, he was in that movie with Vincent Price I talked about on the podcast back in the day, Master of the World, you know, with the flying ship. That is awesome. Oh, this is cool. So, I watched a movie on Hulu a few years ago called Shock Corridor. It's a really interesting horror movie. And if you guys find a chance to watch it, I'm sure you can find it for free somewhere. He's in it. Let me know. I want to know what you think. But besides that, I mean, he did some TV work, and that's all for Wally. Let's look at the career of Marty, who was played by Richard Sinatra. Wait, like, that Sinatra? Oh, he's Frank's cousin. Gotcha. Okay. Well, Richard here, like Gypsy, man, he didn't do too much, right? He was in Ski Troop Attack, the original Ocean's Eleven, Sinatra connection, guaranteed, Creature from the Haunted Sea, and some TV stuff. That's about it. Now, I do have to bring up the actress who played Natalie, uh, at least for a second. Her name is not easy to pronounce, so I apologize. I'm going to call her Lynn, because that looks pretty close, but that last name is beyond me. If you want to look it up, give it a shot. She didn't do too much, but Lord behold, porn. That's right, finally. She was a Playmate of the Month for July 1958. Nice. And those are our main characters for the movie, so those are our nominees for the Lifetime Achievement Award for the podcast from Another World. That is kind of weird to say. And though there were some tough contenders, I think it's no surprise that the award's going to go to... Michael Forrest, who played Gil. I mean, with a resume that covers B-movie horror, incredible voice acting, making appearances in some of my favorite childhood TV shows, and still working to this day. I tip my hat to you, sir. Well, that's a wrap. I want to thank you guys for checking out the episode, and thanks again to my guest, Andrew Hall, for joining me. Please go subscribe to his show. It's available wherever you listen to podcasts. It's called Dead Hand Radio. So for now, Clock back into reality and time, but keep your eyes and ears open, because next month, we're going to take another voyage to the podcast from another world. checking out another episode of a podcast from another world don't forget to go follow dave on all his socials dave underscore phantom on twitter and a podcast from another world 
out there on Instagram. He's brought that back up because, of course, the uh, Slightly Irregular Podcast Network has now begun. So we're in the basic stages of getting everything put together. Uh, in the podcast, I want to give you guys an idea of who's involved in this. We've got Back in Time Podcast, Angry Dad Podcast, From the Waste, Fave Five from Fans, Paranormal Pat, Dead Hen Radio, a uh, podcast from the world, and of course, the Terrible Terror podcast. So basically what you're going to see is us kind of promoting each other a little more than normal, uh, as well as we might have times where, you know, we jump on everybody else's podcasts and guests, um, you know, just so that we kind of all form one giant family amongst podcasters. So don't forget to go ahead and check it out. Uh, it's available on Instagram right now, you can follow the SIP network, S-I-P network. Um, that's available there. And then the Twitter and website and everything else is slowly coming out. So it'll be, you know, advertised a little more on all these podcasts as well as this one that you're listening to right here. So thank you guys once again. And everybody be healthy, stay safe, and we'll see you soon. <laughs>